You're listening to OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. OEA Grow is by members for members. In Season 7, members discuss special education with Venus Reeve. Welcome back to OEA Grow Season 7. I'm your host, Venus Reeve, and this season we are exploring special education. In today's episode, we are speaking with Tennille Weatherall, Assistant Superintendent of the Office of Enhancing Student Opportunities from the Oregon Department of Education. Thank you so much for being here. Before we dive into all of the exciting new changes and and shifts that you're going to share with us, would you tell us a little more about yourself and your role at the uh, ODE, Oregon Department of Education? Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. So I've been at the department for almost two years. Uh, Previous to that, I was an ESD and K-12 superintendent, a curriculum and special education director, special education teacher, and an autism specialist. Uh, My office supports all of birth to 21 special education programs, as well as education programs like youth corrections, juvenile corrections, long-term care and treatment, hospital programs, and the Oregon School for the Deaf. Wow. That's a wide range. Yeah, it's awesome. So there are some um, big well, I don't want to say big changes. I'm not sure about the changes, and this is what you're here to share with us. So there are special education eligibilities that ODE is refining and, and shifting, and can you just share with us more about what those are, what that looks like? Yeah, thank you so much for the question. Things are changing in a few core areas. I want to acknowledge that change is always hard, especially mm-hmm. in light of the strain on the education system over the last couple of years. I do believe, however, that these changes are necessary and really important. I also believe that once teachers understand the shifts and are able to practice the implementation, it will not be an additional additional layer of effort beyond what you're currently doing. Mm -hmm. And hopefully it will, in some ways, relieve some pressures. Oh, I like hearing that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So there's four core areas that I'm going to walk through, and they're kind of complicated, so I'll go slow. So first off, Senate Bill 13 requires updates to eligibility category names. Okay. So speech, speech or language impairment will replace communication disorder. Emotional behavioral disability will replace emotional disturbance. So these are two names that are going to be kinder and more asset-based as we approach our children who experience disability. Next, Senate Bill 16 made updates to the term medical health assessment that we're used to, and it will now be called a medical examination. Mm. It ex- uh, yeah, and so the concept is the same. The okay. name is different. But it also expands individuals who will be able to complete a medical examination, and this is an awesome thing for us. It now allows us to have a physician a naturopathic physician, a nurse practitioner, and a physician's assistant. In addition, it will allow us to not only take our medical examination information from in-state folks, but also out-of-state folks, which is new. Wow, that's huge. It's very a very good thing. 
Finally, it adds vision assessment given by a licensed optometrist or by a physician who specializes in ophthalmology to the options for eligibility assessment, whereas before it would be your doctor. And it adds audiological assessment given by a licensed audiologist to the options for eligibility statement rather than your doctor. Mm -hmm. So they worked really hard to get specialized and to really go to the right partner for the family, for the student, um, and for the community in order to um, get that medical examination form for the eligibility. I know that's been a barrier in in some cases where folks have really struggled either to get that, you know, they just moved here and we don't have a doctor yet and we need, you know, our child needs these services and they were eligible in California and you know, I have the statement from California and all of those are, you know, so-and-so doctor did, but I could only get in to see the PA because we, you know, whatever reason, and it was really limiting to not have these other options. I think it also really delayed sometimes the eligibility process, which delays services. And it also makes it harder for uh, teachers who are waiting for an eligibility statement, trying to finish their paperwork and trying to make sure the kid um, is eligible and they're, and they're working on kind of waiting and tracking down an, an eligibility, a medical examination in order to make them eligible. So hopefully it shortens the runway for the uh, educator as well. Excellent. Next. Yeah, next, uh, it makes updates to the categories which require a medical examination. Okay. So it removes the requirement for a medical examination from intellectual disability and emotional behavior disability. So previous, it was required to get a medical examination for those two uh, eligibilities, and now it has been removed. This adds to the three eligibility areas who already don't require it, which is developmental delay, specific learning disability, and speech or language impairment. Mm -hmm. However, all of the categories may use a medical examination should the team determine that it's necessary. So if you're having your IEP team meeting, you're having your eligibility meeting, and you're looking at one of these categories, and as a team you say, yeah, we really do need that medical examination, you can ask for it, but you're no longer required to do so in order to move forward. Wow, what a removal of a barrier yeah. that's going to be. Correct. That was the hope. <laughs> Lastly, the rule integrates the early intervention, early childhood special education requirements. This does not mean that that will be integrated on the form, rather implemented in the rule for ease of access. So normally we see our form be a K-12 form or an early intervention or early childhood form. The rule is going to combine the eligibility requirements for EI, ECSE, and K-12, but the forms will not, so no worries there. The purpose of putting them in the form is to ensure that there are ease of access to the eligibility information and requirements in one location. Mm. So in Oregon, special education eligibility is divided into three age ranges, early intervention, which is birth to three, early childhood special ed, three to five, and school age special ed, five to 21. Each of those operate under their own rules and requirements. However, a lot of them are really overlapping. Early intervention offers more limited eligibility options than early childhood and school age, which offer identical eligibility options. Currently, our OARs do not provide a single location to determine EI and ECSE eligibility information, which can create confusion mm -hmm. for practitioners and families. 
So the goal here is to be able to go to one location and really have a conversation with families around what it looks like to go from early intervention to early childhood, early childhood to K-12, as well as a quick resource for practitioners instead of looking at three different OARs. Wow. Sounds like there have been some really thoughtful um, changes around making the process a little more streamlined and a lot less confusing for families and practitioners. Yeah, that's the goal. We really heard from our families and from practitioners around um, what are all the different elements, how we might be able to streamline this, and how we might be able to make the, the system a friendlier for the education community, our partners, and especially our families. Wow, it's it's exciting to hear these changes and to kind of understand the 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 nitty gritty details that I might not run into as a practitioner until I have that student who's coming in in kindergarten or you know um, who came in from another state and oh my goodness we need to get this eligibility underway and ah uh, now I have some some other options for our families and our practitioners to make this process more accessible it sounds like. Yeah, definitely. We wanted it to be more equitable. We wanted to break down barriers and we wanted to streamline systems. I think one other important element to share is we're really excited that the rule passed the state board uh, last Thursday. However, we also know that we're in the middle of a school year. And so we are delaying the implementation until next, until uh, uh, August 15th. And the goal there is, is to make sure that we get all of the data out to teachers and families and school districts, support tools ready, and also your technological systems updated so that you can learn on back to school week and over the summer and apply during the school year. So we've done, we kind of backed up the timelines in order to try to make this a softer, gentler uh, introduction to some changes. Oh, I, I so appreciate that. You know, this is the week before spring break um, for me right now. And the concept of adding one more set of, of mental tasks or, you know, shifting in my brain of how things are to how they are with the new with the new guidelines. Um, really appreciate having more bandwidth to process these in August and that that was done so mindfully by ODE. So thank you so much for that. And um, one of, I, I have two questions, actually. One of them is, I'm hearing a lot about why these are so important and the timing that you guys have set up being so critical to really rolling this out in a, and it sounds like a very solid way, as opposed to, oh, let's hurry, hurry, hurry. No, we're going to take it slow and get it really under, in everybody's wheelhouse, so to speak. How did these changes come about? Yeah, great question. So it actually happened quite a long time ago. So Senate Bill 13 and 16 passed in 2019. Oh. And the department was required to update the rules then. Uh, since that time, the department went through engagement processes and a couple of different times adopting rules for traumatic brain injury and deaf and hard of hearing some time ago, but they weren't able to complete the rest of the eligibility categories, primarily because they were both trying to make the adjustments to the new legislation and also the requirements of the categories. So let's think about this kind of through um, kind of an operational lens. We were having the conversation around, what about adding the EIECSC component for clarity? And we need to update the, the name of the, of the uh, eligibility category in some cases and this medical examination. And ooh, what about everything else? 
And so we started working with individual disability community representatives around speech, around intellectual disability. And what we saw was a lot of people who wanted to make a lot of changes inside each one of the eligibility categories, and it became really complex really fast. And so we thought, oh, we better slow down. We are trying, what was happening was that each eligibility category was starting to become very different from each other. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, all right, we need to have a frame, a common frame that every single eligibility category is going to have so that it feels really typical when you start reading. And then kind of the meat of it where we talk about what does it mean to be eligible in that area, those things can be different. But because everyone was giving kind of their input and ideas in each category simultaneous, it was looking really different across the across the different eligibility categories. And we thought, oh, no, we better pause. That was unintended. And so we paused. We did get deaf and hard of hearing and traumatic brain injury done. And we started to think about going back out and getting more information from folks. And then the pandemic hit. So we diverted our attention to the pandemic and pandemic response. And then once we kind of got to that same place that everybody else got, where they could start to think about the way they're doing their day-to-day business, we went back out to do the uh, engagement for this, um, the last remaining eligibilities. And there's actually 13 rule updates. So this time, what we decided to do was just the frame what do we want the each eligibility category to look like, feel like, and pass those rules? And then what we want to do is go back out to the education community one at a time and say, okay, let's talk about speech. Do we want to change anything that's kind of in the meat in those eligibility determination areas, if you will, about um, what it means to qualify? All right, let's go over to an intellectual disability. What about that middle section, that core section about what it means to qualify for intellectual disability? Do we want to change anything in there? And then we we can make the changes to the individual categories without changing the overall look and approach to all of the eligibilities. So we're hopeful that this will allow for each of the communities to have real in-depth conversations because there was real excitement there, but also that we won't have an eligibility, each eligibility looks so different from each other because we think that would be really confusing at the end of the day. Yeah, it would probably be like learning 15 different things as opposed to, you know, a dozen that are fairly similar with these outlying components that I can remember of each one versus, oh my goodness, um, 15 completely different things. So we've talked a little bit, first of all, I am, I had no idea the amount of community engagement and the stakeholder uh, voices that you got in developing this. And I'm super excited because I, you know, as lots of us know, when we get to share how it impacts us individually and, 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 um, how it impacts us personally, there's a lot more investment, but we also feel like that that component, that rule, whatever we're working on has more weight and is is more easily kind of put into our own wheelhouse, our own brains, our own ways of being because we, we got to contribute to it or we have some deeper understanding and connection. Um, and I know we got to, at the special ed committee, got to look at some of these and really kind of talk about and give our our voice to the stakeholder voices. So it's so exciting to get to hear kind of all of the components behind. A lot of times we don't get to hear all of the work that you guys do at ODE to include all the voices in some of these overarching 
uh, in a lot of these overarching um, guidelines that you're required to give us to help us do what we need to do and support families. Um, I know we've talked a little bit already about why these changes were important, but I wanted to make sure and really give um, give the opportunity for you to tell us, you know, there's so many things that, that are going on with this. What do you think are the most important um, changes or, or why these changes are so important? Yeah, thanks so much. I, I really feel like Senate Bill 13 and 16 was really thoughtful and that they had done a great job in that legislation to really think about how to reduce barriers and to increase um, the approach, the asset-based approach to the work that we do. And so it was a pleasure implementing that portion, even if it was a little bit nervous, nerve wracking, you know, as a practitioner myself around like, okay, I've always given that medical statement and it comes back and then I know that I'm done. And so now what does it mean? And so we really rumbled around like, what does it mean to have a medical examination rather than um, the the medical assessment? Uh, and we're going to do some uh, heavy work um, with, for the community around what it, how it's different, what it means. Mm. And we actually feel like it will be helpful at the end to really kind of wrap up and give people talking points uh, letters of uh, draft letters optional that they can send with their um, doctor statements. Uh, I know that for me, I always would send one out and it would come back as just none. <laughs> you know, sometimes it wouldn't be very meaningful. So hopefully it could be more meaningful. And we're also thinking about what it means when a parent is able to give like a file of information to you and what is that relevance and how do we make sure that we can include really rich details in the evaluation portion rather than a piece of paper that kind of feels like we've kind of hit the mark. And so I think what it does is it really, it creates a more um, in-depth, um, rich component to the, to the medical examination portion of the evaluation by really giving us some freedom to look broader at what it is that the child is experiencing so that we understand them more and we can we can name it within the eligibility process rather than feeling like we're connected to an individual tool or form. So I feel like that has been a really exciting piece. It's also been really exciting to think through how the removal of the, the, the medical examination for a couple of our uh, eligibility categories will really increase the likelihood of accessibility to the special ed um, process and to the eligibility process. We know we have a lot of students who experience homelessness, houselessness, those who are just not able to find bilingual doctors, those in rural cities with more limited access to doctors, or those who are at the borders of our state who may be closer to Washington, California, or Idaho. And before they would have to find a doctor in state in order to qualify when really they're crossing the border and their neighborhood doctor really is in another state. So this again, just increases the access and availability. We also have, have people who are just uncomfortable. They're not, um, maybe financially it's really difficult um, or their personal context makes it really difficult to access a doctor. And we just don't think that this is, has to be the, the barrier for eligibility uh, in certain categories. And so the, the idea of pulling uh, off the requirement in these two areas, additional two areas is really exciting. And by putting in there, you can if you need to, 
really still allowing an IEP team to make a really important decision based on that individual child in the moment about if they really do need a medical examination. So we've removed the barrier, but still allowed for the access point for an uh, eligibility team uh, in order to meet the needs of, of the child in the circumstance that they are working with. So that feels really great. I think the EIECSE part makes me uh, super excited just to make sure that families have a simpler uh, process and that hopefully educators too, they're so busy. You folks are so busy. You do not need to be looking up, <laughs> you know, three different OARs. If it can be more simply in um, in each eligibility category and really tell you everything you need to know, then we think that it might reduce some of the barrier to educators as well. And so that's, I guess, the real pleasure of this is just been finding ways to make things more streamlined, to make them more effective, to make them more equity-based, um, and really try to meet the uh, needs of educators and children and families. And really hitting that individual the power of that individualized component. What does this child need? What does this family need in the eligibility process? What is this, you know, what is this scenario instead of a broad overreaching, everyone has to fit through this door. Now we've got some options to really tailor that individual. Do you need a medical statement? Do you not? That's your team. Your team with yeah. that student gets to make that decision. Oh, that's so powerful. I'm getting, I'm getting goosebumps. It's exciting. So I know. It's, it is. It's awesome. What supports are going to be available for schools with these new changes? Yeah. Uh, so to start, we're going to uh, work on the form first. Um, we know that your technological IEP systems really need a lot of time to put it in the Synergy component system or the first net, tie net, or whatever tool you folks are using uh, in individual districts. So we're going to get the form done first and submit it to those uh, agencies so they can start working on uh, putting them into the technological systems. We're going to develop a guidance document. So just able to download it and walk through all the reasoning, the changes, um, the, the history of, of the why that you can uh, either just that the districts can utilize to train on or that you can use as a resource tool, communicate with others. We also want to make sure that we have draft tools, definitely optional, absolutely optional. And one of them came from our meeting with you folks around at the OEA um, special ed um, meeting that we had, uh, which was the question around, hey, how do we how do we teach our our medical examiners what it is that we really truly need? Can you help us with the letter? Can you help us with the communication? And we thought, absolutely, we can do that. So mm -hmm. we're going to work on creating some tools to communicate. And I think that tools need to communicate to families, but also to um, our medical uh, examiners in state and out of state to really help them kind of track into what the need is and why. And over time, I see teachers, they will do an amazing job kind of uh, case managers will kind of move all that information into their brain and it will become so natural at the IEP team table uh, uh, pretty soon, really quickly, yep. probably. <laughs> but in the beginning, it feels kind of nervous. You feel kind of nervous when you're running your IEP meeting, you're trying to explain somebody something new. And we want to create some kind of a tool or a support, a checklist, a, an item for folks to be able to kind of rest on um, until everything becomes really natural for them. 
Uh, we'll create a slide deck for training purposes. So every school district can download that slide deck for like their back to school week. They can edit it and kind of personalize it however they want to train on it. But we'll come up with a base slide deck and then we'll do some webinars where we um, offer an opportunity to train others, but also we'll record them so that uh, if a district wanted to watch the webinar, they could. Some of our uh, 197 districts are, are pretty small. And so hosting a training and doing all of that kind of, uh, you know, work may not make as much sense, but it might make a lot of sense to watch the webinar together and pause and, and yeah. go back and forth as they're learning. So really kind of thinking about what the entire state might need and how we can be a best support. We also have district support specialists, uh, uh, one specialist assigned to every single school district in the state of Oregon. That individual uh, is what is absolutely happy to come to back to school week, come give a training, awesome. come provide technical assistance throughout the year at any time that anybody says, I'm really confused. And we know also that folks are going to come up with things in the field in the next few months and probably into the next year or so and say, hey, this part feels really confusing. What does it mean? So we'll host a Q&A document of the most commonly asked questions and that we'll just continue adding to it when folks give us questions that we hadn't contemplated yet, right? Because change downstream doesn't always come to mind when you're doing this really hard work. And that there are moments that we have to maybe provide guidance because it was something that uh, a context we hadn't contemplated before and it feels hard. So we'll just keep continue to like really stay in concert and connection with each other and make sure that we're providing ongoing guidance uh, to make sure that, that the, the field can implement this um, really well. This is exciting because what I'm hearing is I can go and look for resources on here, here, here. My district will have options for me here, here, here. I can actually contact this person who is my district's you know, or the representative from ODE for my district. If I need questions here, I can get a group of my folks together and we can sit down and tackle a webinar. I can go online and look at that slide deck. I can go online and look at those, those frequently asked questions once you guys have had the opportunity to gather them and we've had the opportunity to come up with them. But the, there are lots of ways for us as the practitioners to access this information, to try it on, to get, you know, that responsive communication um, around these. It's not just, here you go, figure it out, have fun. It's, hey, these are new. We've really thought about how we're going to implement them. We'd really like to hear your feedback on how they're being implemented. And here are all the ways that we're going to try and make that implementation as easy, as user-friendly, and as accessible to you, the practitioners, and the families as possible. Yeah, that's the goal. And that should be our goal with all of our guidance that we turn out or any kind of new effort um, that the par department uh, takes on. And I'll make sure that uh, I get to everyone the, uh, the slide deck that talks about all the changes from today, uh, our guidance documents that might be helpful right now, as well as a map and a contact information for all of the district support specialists. So that anybody that. who wishes to them and say, who's my person <laughs> can find it and make a connection via email. We also recently uh, started at an information line. So if you don't know who your district support specialist is, or you're just like have a, just a generalized question, that there's a generalized information email box where folks can just ask any old question that they want. And then we have a person who's responsible for answering. So 
really trying uh, really hard in my office to make sure that we are relational, thoughtful, provide great technical assistance. We know that being the Department of Ed means that we also have to do really hard things like monitoring and, you know, everyone's been evaluating their files lately. <laughs> and <laughs> we know that that's really hard work and we know that it doesn't feel good. But we also want to be that technical assistance partner and that really relationship driven partner as well to do those federal components. And then we'll also, we also really want to do those, you know, organ relational components. So hopefully this is a really good example of our um, efforts to move in that direction uh, in the department. It, it feels really supportive to hear all of this that's going into making it workable and doable for practitioners and families. It's not just one more thing to do. It's this is going to be different and here's how, and this is where we're going to help you. And you're not out there on your own. Even if you're the only special ed teacher for your district, we've got you covered. You can get in contact with us. We will get in contact with you. You are not alone in this, which is is so huge because sometimes it doesn't definitely feels like, oh, it's all up to me. And it's not, we're a team, but to have, you know, ODE's got our back on this. That feels really powerful. I'm glad. For more OEA professional learning opportunities, visit grow.oregonad.org.